Now, let me just begin. How's that? Is that all right? All right. Let me just begin. Um, when I make an error, which I am prone to do a lot, um, I like to deal with it. Graham, I apologise. I called you David twice at the front. And um, I know a lot of really nice Davids, one of whom looks a little like you. Um, but nevertheless, uh, I've known Graham and Elizabeth for quite a long time, so I apologise for that. Um, let's just commit our time to the Lord. Lord Jesus, we do thank you for the opportunity to be in your word. Uh, to be honest, uh, we don't do it as often as we should. Uh, and every time we come here, Lord Jesus, and we actually really sit and we listen and we try to hear what you want to say to us, it's always such a wonderful experience. Lord, your words really do bring us life. They bring us hope and encouragement. Sometimes they challenge us and sometimes they really rebuke us and bring us back to your path of truth and light. Lord Jesus, we need those things in our life. Boy, do we need them. And this morning is no exception. Lord Jesus, we want to offer this time up to you. Lord, as we're here and we've dedicated this time to you, I ask that you would be gracious to us, merciful, and that you would speak through your word. Lord, speak through my mouth. And Lord, may we as individuals and as your corporate body grow into your likeness. And we ask it in your name and for your glory. Amen. Well, Montmorency is a little bit like Apollo. You know, in Apollo we were going through Acts, and uh, you guys are too. So when I was asked to preach on Acts, I was quite excited. I like the book of Acts. Lots happens. Uh, lots takes place. It's, it's quite a spectacular book. It's a very challenging book, all the things that happen, because often the things that happen aren't necessarily so familiar to us. And it challenges us to back to a place of, Lord, who am I? What is this life you've called me to and what are we going to do together in this world for your glory? What are you calling me to? And uh, today's story, no exception, uh, it's pretty spectacular what happens. And we'll get to that in just a moment, but I want to begin with this. You know, yesterday, um, one of the things that my wife and I are doing a lot of during our time in Melbourne, and we have the privilege of doing, is visiting with folks. We visit a lot of churches, but we also visit individuals. We spend time with them. We sit around kitchen tables. Um, it's very fortunate that we love coffee because that seems to flow. And we were at some people's place yesterday, some dear friends, and just catching up with what has happened to them uh, in recent years and more poignantly in recent months. It hasn't been an easy time for them. And they were sharing with us how just two months ago they uh, lost a little one uh, of theirs. A very, very difficult time. It was lost in uh, the womb. She was lost in the womb, Lily. And uh, they're grieving, deeply grieving. And it was very interesting that the mum shared something with us. She said, at times like this, when grief is so deep and when I struggle to understand God's ways, it's so difficult to know how to pray. I don't know how to talk to him about this and you know I think that's actually very common to all of us all of our lives are punctuated by difficult times difficult things and look I know that the last year has not been an easy time for this church I know that 
And one of the things that we fall into at those times is we don't know how to relate to God about the issue. We don't understand what's going on. It seems that the, the stakes are high and at times it seems very late in the day and there is no solution coming through. There is no rescue. There is, there is nothing. And we struggle to pray. In fact, our tendency is, is to kind of wander away in depression and hopelessness. And today's passage in Acts could very well have led the early church to that same point. Life was tough. You've been reading through this book. You know what was going on. There were wonderful things and there were very difficult things. And the difficult things at this time were starting to intensify. But the passage shows us that the early church did know how to pray. And it shows us three really important aspects of prayer that we can actually incorporate into our prayer life. Whether the times that we're in are some of those greener pastures or whether they are some of the darkest valleys of our lives. The first thing that we will see in this passage about prayer, the first important aspect that I want to highlight in here today is endurance. Luke in writing this account of Theophilus, tells us about Peter's imprisonment. And the reality for Peter is that he was on death row. This was not just imprisonment. We read in the verses at the beginning of the passage that Herod had laid violent hands on some. And James, that is James of the inner trio of Jesus' disciples, James, John, Peter, James had been arrested and put through with a sword. James was dead. The Jews loved it. Yay! And Herod loved the applause. He's like, you like that? You like that? All right. I'm on a roll. Get Peter. Go and get Peter. Peter had been arrested. What do you think Herod's intent was for Peter? He liked pleasing the Jews and his intention was to do exactly the same. Prison was death row for Peter and he was in there though for a long time. We actually don't know how long James was there. He might not have even got in the gate of prison. The scriptures don't tell us how quickly James was dispatched of. But for Peter, Peter was actually in prison for an extended period here. And the reason was, the scripture tells us, was that it was the time of the Passover. It says it was during the days of unleavened bread. And we read later in verse 4 that Herod's intent was to actually bring Peter out to do what? To execute him after the Passover. Now, the Feast of Unleavened Bread actually celebrated that Passover time in the Old Testament when God brought the Israelites out of Egypt. Very interestingly, the actual Passover celebration was the first of seven days, not the last that it was of the first day and then they had seven days and it finished with a feast and that was the end of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now here it talks about after the Passover, but Herod wasn't going to do it. What it means is after the whole deal, after the Feast of Unleavened Bread, after the seven days because of Jewish sensitivities. Remember, Herod wanted to please the Jews, not upset them. So he was willing to wait. We don't know when Peter was brought into prison, but verse 5 tells us, so Peter was kept there. It's an extended stay. 
Now we go on in this story and we know that something's going to happen. We know that God actually does act here on Peter's behalf. But the believers didn't know it. And one thing that Luke emphasizes to us in verse 6, he does it twice, is that even though God did do something, it was absolutely at the last minute. In verse 6 he says, Now Herod was, when Herod was about to bring him out, in prison, in prison, in prison, in prison, nothing, 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 nothing. But when Herod was about to bring him out, it's on the eve of execution. And then he strengthens it. He says, on that very night. Which night? That night. The last night. Now that's important. Luke doesn't emphasize that twice for nothing. He's trying to make a point. He's saying that God has delayed his action in this event deliberately. The believers were praying the whole time. We read in verse 5, Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. And we know that they were praying, praying, praying. They were praying right through the fact that God then did do something. They were still praying. Because when Peter later goes to the house of Mary, guess what they're doing? They're still praying. The believers were enduring in prayer. They were in for the long haul. Now, here's a question. Why does God delay like this? Have you ever experienced this in your life, in issues of prayer, where there's something that would really help, something that would be great? You know, several years ago, the last time we were heading back to the field, we needed, this is a very simple story, but it's it's an indicative one. We needed um, some finances for a car. We didn't mention it to anybody. We just, that was the need. Nothing happened, nothing happened. We had enough to go, but nothing for a car when we got there. So we prayed and we went to the airport and we had our luggage and we even checked in and put our luggage in and it got, went on the conveyor belt. We were in the lounge waiting to go and board our plane. Nothing, nothing, nothing. And then the phone rang. And we found out that somebody had anonymously donated the full amount for a vehicle. Why? Is it always at the last minute? It so often is with God. Well, I don't think it's arbitrary at all. That's not by chance. It's very deliberate by God because he wants to achieve certain things through the delay. Delaying does two things in our lives. One, for us, it actually clarifies the reality and the extent of our need. If we get something straight away, it's like, oh, yeah, well, yeah, I need it, but it's, it's not a big deal. It was right. But when it doesn't come, it's like, oh, I actually need this. This is, this is an issue. And when nothing happens, it's like, I'm in real trouble if this isn't fixed. Our need becomes more crystal. And also, the number of our sources or options of where that need is going to be fulfilled gets reduced. Very often, early in our travels, we look at all sorts of options. But as things delay, as God holds back, other options, other solutions are exhausted. And there's only usually one that remains. And that's God himself. So God's delay clarifies our needs in our own thinking and in our own perspective. The other thing 
is it increases God's glory. That when he does deliver something into our lives, when he does choose to act, and he does not always, but when he does choose to act, it's very clear to us and often to others as well of who has done the work. I tell you the story about the car. Who do you think did that? God did. Only God. You know, when things look inevitable, dire, lost, there is a real temptation for us so late in the day, a tendency for us to just kind of fade away. It's like, it's not going to happen. We tend to give up. I've done it personally many, many times in my life. Why bother? It just seems useless. God doesn't perhaps care. I don't know. Well, here's why enduring in prayer is so important. It's what happens to us when we stay in this until the last. And that is that prayer is as much about a relationship as it is about an outcome. Hmm. Isn't that interesting? We often think prayer is... I'm just going to keep doing that also. We often think prayer is about the outcome. But guess what? It's not. With God, prayer is all about relationship. Outcomes are secondary. When we stay in prayer with God, when we endure in our prayer, it deepens our relationship with Him, our intimacy with Him. It clarifies who He is in our life, the role He wants to play in our life, the Lord He wants to be in our life. That becomes so much clearer. And our intimacy and our dependence and our, our closeness to God grows. Even when the outcomes don't end up being what we expected or perhaps even what we hoped for, you know what? You endure in prayer, you walk closely with God. The second important aspect of prayer that we can see in this passage is expectation. You know, this situation was impossible. And Luke, again, he, Luke's good at this in his writing. He did it in the Gospel of Luke and he does it now in Acts. He emphasises little things. And what he emphasises here is the impossibility of Peter's situation. He says he was between two guards, sleeping between two soldiers. Verse 6, bound with two chains. Later on in verse 10, he tells us, tells us about the iron door to the city that was closed. There were other sentries around. This was maximum level security. You know, many years ago, uh, when I did live in Melbourne, before we went to Poland, I was doing uh, some volunteer work with uh, Prison Fellowship. And my work involved going into the assessment prison in uh, Spencer Street each week and spending time with the prisoners. Spencer Street Prison, uh, the assessment prison, is a maximum security prison. And I would arrive, I remember this so clearly, the first time it scared me silly. I would arrive and I'd have to step into this booth, the doors would close and all these little jets of air in the walls would punch into me. And the idea was to dislodge any particles, bomb particles, you know, explosive powder particles, drug particles, anything, and it would get sucked out the bottom of the booth and I was, I was stuck in this booth. You couldn't come out until it, bing, you're clear. I'd walk out, I'd go into the front room. I'd have to take out my pass and show it to the, the guard. I would then have to sign my name and they would check it against my pass. 
Then I'd have to lean forward and I'd have to look into a, a retina scanner and it would scan my eyes. Then I used to have to come over, uh, empty out everything, and put it in the thing, send it through the, like the airport, you know, the metal detector, and actually go and stand in a sweet metal detector. Once the guard says, I exit out. Come out, I then have to stand and put my hands up. He goes over me and pats me down. He gets the wand, goes over everything, inside the belt, all, all everything, socks. Then... I then have to come along and tap on glass. There's a guard in the booth. I show him my card. He looks at me, looks at the card, looks at his screen, buzzes a door. That's into an interim room. Once I'm in the interim room, that door closes. Then the next door opens, goes through, shuts the door. I'm in the prison. There were six levels, steps of security, maximum security. And you know what? Once you're in, you weren't getting out of there very fast. I often used to think that. Ah, I'm in now. <laughs> This was the ancient version of maximum security that Peter was in. But then we see that God did indeed step in here, God's deliverance. We read about the angel who appeared. It's interesting, this angel just appeared. The angel didn't actually have to go through those levels of security. There was, there was no entrance process into the prison. And I think that's a real encouragement to us. You know, in the midst of our darkest place, you know what? God's there. He doesn't have to find you or come to you. He's there. I love that picture. The angel comes. There's a light too. We don't know if the light was coming from the angel, if the light was near the angel, but we know that the light was the glory of God and if it was carried in the angel, that's what it was. The angel's there. And you know what? Then, this is great. There was no mucking around. It says, the angel struck Peter on the side in verse 7. You look up that word struck. You know the other two times in the New Testament, or yeah, the New Testament, no, not, not the New Testament, the whole Bible, it's used exactly the same form, exactly the same word. One is when Peter struck the high priest's servant slave's ear when Peter, uh, Jesus was getting arrested. The other one was when Moses smote the Egyptian. It's actually the word smoke, to, to smite. Uh, this is not mucking around. This angel is there meaning business. When he hit Peter, he hit Peter. Now, it doesn't, doesn't explain why, it's pretty rough treatment. Perhaps Peter was a very deep sleeper. I don't know. But anyway, the result was very effective. Peter woke up. And then, bang, 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 bang. It unfolds so quickly. In fact, the angel says, get up quickly. And then it continues at rapid pace. We read from verse 7, get up quickly. The chains fell off his hand. The angel said to him, dress yourself, put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you, you and, uh, around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. Peter, he did not know what was going on. He thought he was seeing a vision. But when they passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them out of its own accord. They went out and went along the street and immediately, boom, the angel's gone. What? You can kind of understand Peter's reaction. What just happened? This is kind of like the first SEAL team raid in history. It's like target acquired, in, 60 seconds, dis uh, confusion, disorientation, go, 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 grab, go, out, bang, gone, done. Peter just thought this was a vision, just went along for the ride. But very effective. God always is. When he wants to get something done, he gets it done. So Peter sets off to Mary's house. Why Mary's house? How did he know to go there? How did he know the believers would be there? The text actually gives us some clues on this. It says that when he got there, he had to knock on a gate. You know, small, regular houses 
in Israel at that time wouldn't have had gates. This was obviously a bigger house. The other thing too is it had a servant, at least one, because we hear about Rhoda. So a gate and servant. This is a larger house, which means it was probably a very natural place for believers to choose to actually gather. It could accommodate them. And it's likely that this was a regular gathering place for the early church. So when Peter got out, he probably had a fair idea of where he was going to probably find the believers gathered. And he probably knew what they would be doing. So Peter went to Mary's house. And you know, what then strikes me in these verses is how much faith. We meet this girl. And she is like the unsung hero to me in this story, Rhoda. She gets a bit of flack from the other believers at one stage, but she's amazing. I think this girl's great. How much faith does she display? Because you know what? Peter knocks on the door. Rhoda comes out. And from Peter's perspective, he would have heard these footsteps. Perhaps they stop. Who is it? Uh, it's Peter. <gasps> ah! And then the footsteps just run away. Peter's like, say what? Um, now, we actually read what did happen. We know that Rhoda was super excited. She didn't have to see Peter. She was that excited without even seeing him. To me, that speaks of incredible faith. Because think about this. We've already seen that the odds of Peter actually being outside that gate on that occasion were virtually impossible. He was being held in maximum security prison. There was no way he could, should, or even would be outside that gate. But he just said it was him, and that was enough for Rhoda. Woohoo! She was off. She was so excited, so convinced that she didn't even think straight. She didn't even open the door. But she ran back inside and shared the good news with everybody. You know, the level of her excitement shows the depth of her faith, but it shows something else too. It shows that she really cared about Peter. The fact that Peter was out, she was ecstatic. And you know, her care and excitement, it also indicates that, yes, she was a servant girl in that house, but like the others gathered in that house, the care that she had for Peter indicates that she too was probably a believer and that she too had probably been praying for Peter along with the rest of them. But her reaction shows something very unique about her prayer, doesn't it? It stands out. When Peter had, has, had been delivered, she didn't doubt for a moment that it was true. She didn't even have to see him or hear his story of explanation of how that could have possibly taken place. What's more, she went back in and nobody believed her. No one. In fact, as I said, she got ridiculed. You're crazy. Cut it out. It's not even funny. But nothing can shake her conviction. She sticks to her guns. She insisted, the Bible tells us, and but she insisted that it was true. Where does she get that? When mature believers, she's probably the young one, when mature believers are saying, you are mistaken, you're wrong, or they, they write it off with another explanation, it's probably his ghost, which was a part of the belief back then that people had their personal uh, spirit that went along. 
But she sticks to her guns. Uh Uh-uh, he is there. He is there. You know, Rhoda wasn't praying for Peter with just endurance. Her excited, unshakable, faith-filled reaction shows us that she was also praying with expectation. The impossibility of circumstances were absolutely irrelevant to her. She clearly believed that should God want Peter to be freed, he was more than able to do it. Not an issue. And you know, we've just read the account of how God did free Peter. And you know what? Not an issue. When God wants to get it done, he gets it done. Well, Rhoda believed that God can. Outcomes aside, and her faith was not dependent on the outcome of Peter actually being outside the gate. Outcomes aside, she knew God and had faith in his ability to deliver Peter. Praying with expectation. The third important aspect of prayer in this passage is acceptance. Prayer that willingly accepts any outcome from God's hand. Now this one cuts a little close to the bone, I'll warn you. You know, there seems to be a really stark comparison between Rhoda and the other believers at Mary's house that day, doesn't there? However, you know what? I don't think it is fair at all, and I think it's inaccurate to say that the other believers were lacking in faith. It's true, they certainly were not expecting Peter to be outside that gate. Crazy Rhoda, it's a ghost. And verse 16 tells us they were amazed, astounded. They're like, what? But I don't think this was due to a lack of faith. Instead, I believe, is because they hadn't been especially praying for Peter's release. It hadn't even really been on their radar. Now, why do I think this? I'll explain. Firstly, their reaction is extremely odd. We know from elsewhere in the book of Acts that, and you've gone through this book, you know these believers. They had great faith, really strong faith. They had seen God literally do amazing things, including several chapters earlier, you've probably done the sermon on it, breaking people out of prison. The apostles were in there on another occasion. Now, here's the thing. If they had been praying for perhaps several days that Peter would be freed, Lord, please free Peter, and then suddenly he is miraculously freed, the depth of the doubt that they display to Rhoda simply makes no sense at all. We would expect them to celebrate the fact that prayers have been answered or to at least remotely entertain the possibility that, let's check this out. But you know what? They don't do that. They flatly dismiss it. That's very strange. Secondly, the second reason I think this is that suffering and persecution were completely normal in the life of the early church. Peter's situation wasn't a first. 
It wasn't out of the ordinary. In the book of Acts, persecution always accompanied the spread of the gospel. It was like two sides of one coin. Gospel declaration, opposition and persecution. If this one's here, you can bet this one will be there as well. So, this even extended to the extent of executions. Martyrdom of the believers, including church leaders. You know, this wasn't abnormal. In in fact, it had just been happening recently. Stephen had just been stoned. James, just a couple of days earlier, had been run through with the sword. Persecution was intensifying. So, having been arrested, why would it at all be strange in their thinking for Peter to be next? Jesus in his time on earth had clearly told his followers to expect persecution. And you know what? It was happening. Do you know these believers had never known Christianity without it? What was happening to Peter wasn't something to be avoided or escaped in their book. Mm -mm. It was just a normal part of following Jesus Christ. The third reason why I think they weren't necessarily praying for Peter's release is that these believers seem to be operating, living and praying according to a completely different set of priorities. They had a different agenda going on. For them, life was not about avoiding trouble and living comfortably. They believed that their lives now belonged to Jesus and they were under the direction and power of the Holy Spirit. You have seen through the book of Acts to this point that this had very much been their actual experience. The Holy Spirit had been with them. The Holy Spirit had been using them. The Holy Spirit had done things around them. The Holy Spirit had saved people. The Holy Spirit had worked in might and power. That was their reality. They found themselves being used by God to fulfill the great commission that they'd been given to share the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. They did not consider any of the events in their lives to be accidental or incidental, but they understood that they were all under God's sovereign control and would be used for his glory. Peter's imprisonment and death sentence were therefore no surprise for the early church. Do you realise this? They were surprised. And they knew that God may just as well use these realities to achieve his purposes as much as any other. As we look and focus, uh, and focus on the teachings within the early church through Acts, it seems that they weren't really centred on release from prison as much as the ability of believers to stay strong and faithful in any and every circumstance, no matter what it was. Rather than those believers praying for Peter's release, it is far more likely the evidence points extremely strongly to the fact that they were wanting to stand with him during this time of trial to pray for his strengthening, for his endurance, that he would remain faithful. And that like Paul, for example, in Philippians 1 and 12, that what was happening to him would really serve to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, Peter was certainly at peace about the situation. We read in verse 6 that on the eve of his probable execution, what was he doing? 
sleeping between two soldiers. He wasn't concerned about his current circumstances. He knew that his life belonged to Christ. He was where he was supposed to be at that time under the sovereignty of God. God was in control. So he slept peacefully. Weird, huh? It's weird for us. Of course, it so happens that God did choose to miraculously rescue Peter that night. And it seems that that Peter was as surprised as anyone. We've already seen that in verse 9, he thought this was all a vision, this breakout. And even in verse 11, after the angel disappeared, it took him a few moments to kind of get a grip that this was all real. Peter was released. Woohoo! But James wasn't. Even for Peter, you know, this was actually only a temporary reprieve. Church tradition holds that years later he was arrested again and died a martyr's death. Imprisonment or release, life or death, these were not the primary issues for the believers. They knew that they personally were saved and that their eternal destiny was 100% secure in Jesus Christ. Many of them would end up dying for their faith, not just the apostles. Their focus was rather upon the sovereignty of God in their lives. They prayed to stay strong. They prayed that they would remain faithful. They prayed that no matter what the circumstances in their lives would be, that they would be able to honour Jesus and be used by him for his glory. Wow. We saw that the believers prayed with endurance. We saw that Rhoda prayed with expectation. And now we see the third important aspect of prayer clearly displayed. The believers prayed with humble acceptance. This was the acceptance of the sovereignty of God over their lives and over every situation in which they might find themselves. They believed that no matter what would come, no matter what would unfold, God knew, get this, that God knew what was best. That he could be trusted. And everything was in complete control. The importance of prayer that endures, enduring prayer. The importance of prayer that is full of expectation. The importance of prayer that will set out acceptance. You know, sometimes this is a very, very difficult balance for us personally to achieve in our prayer life. How does that look? When that all comes, that it gets mishmashed into one. How's that look? Well, you know, it's very, very handy actually. God gave us a really clear model of that in uh, the book of Matthew, in chapter 26, and in Luke chapter 22, we read the account of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane before his crucifixion. It was a prayer in the garden between he and his heavenly father. And we see those same qualities shine through. Did Jesus endure in prayer? Well, yes, he did. Matthew tells us that 
Three times he went and knelt down again, sweated it out again, drops of blood, pleading with his father, discussing the situation with his father, bringing the situation to him under his sovereignty, enduring prayer, expecting prayer. Was Jesus praying knowing that God could deliver him out of that situation? Yes, he did. That's exactly the way he was praying. If it be your will, deliver me out of the situation. We read later that we know that God could have sent the legions of angels to release him from that and rescue. Expectation, full of expectation, a relationship, knowing who his father is and what his father is capable of. And then prayer of acceptance. Not my will, but yours be done. Well, we read today that God delivered Peter out of prison. But you and I know that that does not always happen and it did not happen at the cross. Jesus had to walk on on one of the toughest roads that anyone had ever walked. But here's the thing. As he endured in prayer, as he was expecting in prayer, as he was accepting in prayer, his father was present with him. And they were close. God was in control of that situation. Oh yeah. God then took him through to the end of the road. Never left him. We hear that they were separated at the point of death. That was necessary. And yet it was his spirit that God sent, the Father sent, to raise Jesus again from the dead. He didn't abandon him. And then the result of this, what's, what was the result of Jesus' road? That millions and millions and millions of people had a chance to live and come to God. You know, my friends, we are not in prison yet. But it is the same for us. Sometimes in our lives as we bring our difficulties to God, you know what? He is going to bring the deliverance. It's going to be magnificent. You've probably experienced some of those before. I certainly have. And I praise him for them. And you know what? Sometimes we won't get the answers or the deliverance that we were hoping for, the, the, the one that we thought we needed. And we will need to walk through the fire. But regardless of the outcome of our prayers, regardless of what unfolds in any situation, as we pray with the balance of endurance, expectation and acceptance of his will in our life, our intimacy with him will deepen. Oh, will it deepen. We will be ever more aware of his presence with us in our lives and from that basis, we will have the, have the assurance of his complete control. He will not let us go. Whether the answer is yes or no, God will not let us go. He will not abandon us. 
and he will bring us through to the end. And you know what our end is? Well, it's the same as Jesus. That at the end of all of this, my friends, you and I get to share with him in his glory. I don't know what lies between here and there for you and me. But we have that assurance. We also have the knowledge and joy that through our lives as believers, our testimony as we walk this road with God is one that by his sovereign plan is destined and empowered by the Spirit to touch, invade and potentially be used to save the lives of millions, not here on earth, but for eternity. You know, we all go through our tough times. I know tough times as churches and I don't know all the things in your individual lives that you're currently dealing with. But my message to you this morning is really, really simple. Let me gently encourage you to endure in your prayer, to expect from God when you pray. And then also to humbly accept his sovereignty as he brings about the best for you according to his sovereign salvation plan. You know, it means that whatever happens, yes, no, maybe, wait, whatever his answer is, whatever deliverance he brings or not, it's actually going to be okay. Isn't that good news? It encourages me no end. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this time. And uh, this is is a special calibre of prayer that I I think all of us would love to exercise more often in our lives as we're wrestling through the reality of, of daily challenge and trouble. But we don't. And so on that note, Lord Jesus, we want to ask for your help. We thank you today through your word for alerting us, for making us aware of what we can do with you in prayer, how we have been invited to pray with you. But Lord, we also do pray for the the leading, the guidance, the conviction, the wisdom from you that your spirit brings. Lord, you're with us and that's why we pray this. We're not asking you to pour out from your throne. We're asking you to pour into our hearts by the spirit that you've already given. Lord, We want to walk with you. We want our lives to be used by you. And so, Lord, help us to handle the good and the bad, the difficulty, whatever it is, in prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you for this morning. In your precious name, amen.